Welcome to the Esports Network Podcast. We're talking, of course, the latest and greatest things happening within the industry. I'm Kevin Correa, your host, as I've been for the last few months here, of course, talking about things with players, with businesses, with executives, things of that nature, really starting to come uh, into into the fray of the esports industry. And here to kind of help me dissect their latest kind of uh, opinions, if you will, let's welcome in Dan Schnapp and Sid Foreman of Shepard Mullen and Francesco Diani of FTI Consulting. How are you guys doing today? Great job. Great. Tremendous. Awesome. So let's start with a little quick introduction. Uh, let's start with Dan. Uh, a quick little bio on you, like where you, where you are, uh, where you came from, and how you got here. <laughs> it's a long story, Kevin. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I'm a partner at Shepard Mullen in New York. Um, Shepard Mullen's a, a, a leading uh, AMLAW 50 uh, law firm national based with some international presence as well um i lead i co-lead the esports and gaming team with sid foreman here um and i'm also a lead of our technology transactions practice at the firm um uh, my practice much like sid's is corporate commercial in nature really at the intersection of technology media and entertainment uh, particularly interactive entertainment and sports as well um, both of us, uh, about three years ago now, Sid, I would say it's about two and a half, three years. Yep. We decided to, uh, form a multi multidisciplinary team around esports and gaming, uh, particularly to leverage all the existing expertise that we have at the firm, which is very, very varied, um, uh, across the board. Um, you know, advertising, facilities management, broadcasting, intellectual property, immigration, all the things that go into the esports ecosystem. Um, and we decided to target the market that way. And it's been rather successful. And um, we've been fortunate enough to partner with uh, the folks at FTI and Francesco here um, to create this, I think, very timely report and, um, uh, white paper on media rights in the particular industry and, and the, the challenges facing the industry to exploit that and unlock the value of media rights. No, for sure. And, and Sid, anything to add on that? Was he, was he dead on the money with that or? Yeah, not said at all. Um, one thing to add, I, I, along with Dan, do a lot of work in the music space. Um, so as Dan mentioned, intersection of, of media and technology and certainly music. And we, we've certainly seen um, a flurry of activity and growth um, within esports um, as it relates to music and the music industry. So that's also a, a really exciting area. For sure. And so, of course, we cannot forget about Francesco Diani from FTI Consulting. Francesco, you enjoying working with these guys so far? And how do you think uh, they've, they've been coming along so uh, with your partnership? <laughs> Absolutely. I think, uh, you know, it, we were well met. Uh, the, the the partnership has been going great. Uh, look forward to doing more. I'm a, I'm a partner and senior managing director at FTI Consulting, focusing on the media and entertainment uh, industry. So, uh, I lead actually our video game practice, which uh, we started to coalesce broadly around the same time, actually, that, that Sid and Dan kind of started to create their own esports um, uh, offering as well. So, you know, it was quite timely. And I think, you know, a meeting of the minds, I would say, from that from that perspective. I'm actually an ex-executive uh, from, from Ubisoft Entertainment. I used to head up business intelligence for them back in the day. Uh, so I've, I've worked both as an advisor to the broader video game uh, ecosystem, but also worked in 
in in the ecosystem as well. And just like Dan and, and Sid, you know, recently have been doing quite a bit of work around the esports space. Uh, again, looking at you know areas such as you know the media supply chain component of it, uh, helping teams as well, uh, looking at how others can participate in in the space, uh, understanding kind of the different dynamics and what we try to bring together uh, as part of this thought piece is I would say the the essence of all of the different learnings that we've we've started to to coalesce around and uh, and share it with the with the with the broader uh, community i would say for sure and so we'll talk about this this white paper you guys uh, worked together what worked together to uh, to publish it's very very interesting and i'm sure uh, a lot of people want to dive into it. but before we get into that uh let's start with with my first big question for you guys right pretty much it's it's surrounding the youth of today kind of dictating the trends of tomorrow and the coming decade right so francesco you worked at ubisoft as an executive what was your reaction when it came to the advent of esports and gaming culture i mean you were there at ubisoft for a number years i imagine and so seeing this must have come to no surprise right yeah i mean look you know i've i've been you know in and around the community for quite some time i'm you know i'm a a recovering gamer myself uh (laughs) and so it's something that i've seen i would say however you know the advent of 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 esports really came in you know from a uh, a very very grassroots point of view at least for me and and very as you said kind of very youth driven so you know i would even say you know maybe you know i'm a little bit older than those that have kind of participated in esports directly you know from the get-go uh, you know it's something that i saw coming as a wave you know and i was based in europe before and i saw a lot of of what was going on there uh, uh, historically. Uh, but, you know, even today, you know, within even our firm, we have people who have actually been born out of the esports space. We have people on our team who are ex sports players and ex uh, uh, amateur esports players. But this is even for them at a time where all you could hope for was to get maybe a t shirt and a sandwich if you were competing, <laughs> uh, which, you know, we've, we've, we're now living in a completely different world uh, as far as that is concerned. For sure. And so, Dan, uh, and Sid, of course, your firm has kind of been working on this end as well. What have you seen kind of was it, is it the same kind of story? The youth is driving the statistics from your perspective as well. Um, so do you want to take that? Or you want I, I'm happy. to. I'm happy to do that. Sure. Um, so um, I, I think. I think there's there's a variety of driving factors. Certainly in in the entertainment space, interactive entertainment space, youth um, is and and the young folks and, and the, that demo. Certainly the 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 demo that 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 advertisers and um, and a variety of stakeholders that are looking to monetize the industry are looking at very closely because it's a huge demo. It's, it's hard to attract. It's it's a very loyal demographic. Um, and, um, it's super attractive and super valuable. So I don't, I don't think this is unique in esports. I think it's, it's certainly uh, across the board in, in large big box retail, it's in technology, it's in any form of entertainment. Um, having my roots, um, you know, initially in financial services, and then kind of broadening over into entertainment. And I've been in, you know, practicing the entertainment business for, you know, more than two decades. Yeah, I saw I saw video games and just you know just general engagement 
um, and the opportunity for this type of competition a long time ago with major media companies recognizing it like Viacom and others, um, taking their brands and exploiting them in a variety of ways in this audio visual entertainment, you know, means of entertainment was one that um, started to explode, you know, way back in the 80s. Um, and uh, is continuing to, to, you know, to, to emerge and, and be monetized and scale. So I, I don't know if it's, if, if it's the only thing, but it's certainly a very critical aspect of the growth of the, of the sport and the industry as a whole. For sure. And so I'm curious now, before we get into this, this white paper, were there any real skeptics or was there like immediate support when you guys came out to lead your your respective departments, if you will, uh, from your your bosses? Or was there something that you kind of made them say, like, hey, this is something we should really look at. I want you to head this. I mean, uh, I mean, let's start with with the guys from from Shepard Mullen. Like, what was that reaction from the workplace like when these when video game practice or video game uh, focused uh, study was being? was being put forth said take it. it was uh it was uh, immediate support and and some very meaningful ways and i think some of the things that we do that are um uh somewhat unique in the legal marketplace is that we're very industry focused across the board so uh it you know it didn't take much to explain um to management here you know, why this was an opportunity, uh, the numbers, you know, told the story. Um, and also, you know, a lot of us having, you know, kids like my, I have a son that's 13 years old, right? I have a daughter that's, or my son just turned 14, my daughter's 17. You know, they are used to communicating online, right? That's how they communicate. And I think one of the things Dan touched upon, um, and I'll just kind of expand on that a little bit. I think what is unique about this ecosystem, um, if you're looking at monetizing, is you have a significant number of people who are interacting online and you can you can go right to them. Right. Um, and that's something that I, I think makes this space in particular extremely exciting, um, you know, for for potential advertisers and, and the like. Um, so you know, resounding support off the bat. And then when you, when you canvass a law firm where you got a thousand lawyers, um, you realize that there are a whole host of folks that had been doing work in the space. Mm. And that's completely understandable. And so, I mean, nowadays, if you, you grew up in a house that didn't have Sega or an Atari, you're, you're kind of shocked, but uh, it's, it's becoming more commonplace nowadays. And so the man from, from Ubisoft now with FDI Consulting, let's talk with, with Francesco one more time, of course. Um, what was your experience with esports like? And um, either when you were at Ubisoft and, and when you were at FTI or when you're at FTI right now, what experience did you have with esports or competitive gaming? What was your, I guess, your first reaction to hearing this industry kind of take off? Look, to me, it just seemed very logical, right? I mean, even when I was at when I was at Ubisoft, I think esports was still a little bit, you know, in the underground. I want to say, uh, you know, there weren't, you know, the the, the, the massive publishers that are focused on those types of, uh, of games, the way that we see, you know, our Riot Games, you know, today, for instance. So it was very, very early in, in days and the inception and the focus, I would even say from, 
a traditional publisher like like a Ubisoft was very much kind of going down the traditional route of, hey, I'm going to put out some AAA games, etc. However, there was always that connective tissue with the community, right, which uh, is fundamental to to anything that you do uh, in, in the video game space. And I think, you know, the the fact that it was is such an organic thing and very grassroots uh, you know, I remember people playing, you know, competitive Street Fighter uh, at the time, right? Um, but people would see that as a, a almost as an edge case. That edge case is becoming increasingly, you know, a mainstream case, especially when it, when you think about the audience that Dan and, and Sid were alluding to. It is a very elusive audience for traditional uh players in the media space, traditional broadcasters uh, who are kind of losing that audience, for instance, and advertisers, you know, following suit. So, you know, as you see that audience coalesce around a unique set of content that, you know, has been designed essentially by them for them, you know, um, it becomes an increasingly attractive demographic to to pursue, so you know, uh, my my direct because uh, you asked also about my, my direct experience with 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 esports, you know, the first time that I actually uh, saw it beyond kind of you know knowing about these kind of underground you know Street Fighter uh, contests that were taking place, I was living in France at the time in Paris, etc. <laughs> you know, um, I actually started to see the iceberg kind of you know pushed through pushed through the ocean when I went to, to E3, uh, I want to say five or six years ago. And there was a little bit of kind of esport-esque uh, uh, buzz there. But even there, it was kind of empty. I don't think not many people realized what was what was coming, at least of the traditional, I would say, exhibitors that you would have found at, at, at E3, for instance. Um, but then, you know, now it's, you know, very, very prevalent. So I think it's something that, as I said, has grown up from the grassroots. Um, is going to become increasingly a mass movement, right? Uh, uh, you know, we talk about some of the challenges for it to really reach that mass, uh, in particular when you're thinking about the audience that hasn't grown up with it, that, you know, is maybe seeing some challenges and even understanding kind of what it is, right? You know, someone can pick up, uh, you know, uh, a broadcast of a basketball game and kind of know what they're looking at, you know, very, I mean, it's, it's a difficult uh, transition for someone who's never been exposed to, you know, League of Legends to watch a, watch a, watch a match there and say, okay, what, what am I looking at? You know, what, why is this move cool? Or why is it, you know, tremendously, you know, um, innovative, for instance. So I think there's, there's some steps to, and some uh, hoops to jump through in order to really, break out kind of the, the the mass aspect of it but certainly now it's much more prevalent and at the top of people's mind compared to you know even three four years ago i just want to mention stating you lived in paris france that's like a very big humble brag i <laughs> compared to i'm out here in dallas i'm just like i've never seen an eiffel tower before in my life so thank you for for providing that that little that little tidbit that's awesome and so um from from the guys from shepherd mullen of course um what, what was your first experience witnessing either an esports event or something within the esports industry, like live on your television screens or live in person? What was that reaction like from you guys? I, I can tell you that from my perspective, my eyes really opened wide when I started seeing some statistics. Um, and then, uh, you know, about uh, about um, certain certain tournaments that were drawing, you know, 
thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of, of viewers, as well as, you know, attendees um, for a final that dwarfed, you know, the NBA finals. That, that, that certainly was, was telling and a compelling statistic. But I think the most important thing that really caught my eye coming, you know, as a lawyer in the media industry for so long and, and understanding um, how sports gets distributed um, and how they're packaged, seeing esports for the first time when I was just channel surfing on a Sunday on ESPN, really, and, and TNT, that really um, was eye-opening for me. And I think that that was a milestone, at least in the United States, for um you know, the typical non-endemic advertisers and stakeholders in this industry to take notice. The influencer market was there, right? Mm -hmm. You know, you've got the fan base was there. Um, the, the traditional hardcore gamers understood it, um, followed it. But I don't think major media really understood how uh, compelling and how valuable that audience would necessarily be or how engaged it was until you started seeing that mainstream adoption um so that's that that's when that's when my eyes opened i think um at that moment sid what about you yeah i mean i had been working with some folks you know up you know, seven, eight years ago that were heavily involved in the space. And I had the opportunity to participate in, uh, you know, the, the North American League of, of, Levi, uh, of Levi, League of Legends um, and um, all the new, you know, franchisees coming into that ecosystem. And in particular, watching a bunch of NBA teams kind of hop on board and that kind of the light turned on for me there, um, <clears throat> you know, as a traditional sports fan as well. And then, you know, watching my kid, um, you know, as immersed as he has been in some activity uh, and and sitting and watching on Twitch and YouTube, you know, tutorials on how to be better at the game. Um, you know, like when I was young, we were playing for fun, right? I, there weren't folks like online teaching us how to be better. You know, we practiced to get better. And now you've got all these influencers, um, you know, teaching, teaching these kids how to play the game better. Um, and, and for me, that's, you know, those two things is kind of where the, where the light bulb went on. Like, okay, this is, this is a real thing. And so based on a lot of your experiences and based on a lot of your work, you guys kind of partnered together, FTI and, and uh, Shepard Mullen, and you've published this, this white paper report, if you will, where you kind of detailed the emerging statistics, yeah, the, the, the future trends for esports media rights as it uh, appeals to, I guess, the mass market, if you will. And so you in this report, I just want to start off really quickly because this is, this is we're going to link it all in the, in the podcast description because it's really fascinating just how in-depth you guys get. Uh, you and your whole teams, of course, not just you three. It's also a whole team behind you guys helping you publish these, these works. Um, you make a lot of comparisons to traditional sports and their media rights um, compared to this esports wave. What for you guys are, are the, the key differences or similarities between sports and esports when it comes to these media rights? And we'll start with, I guess we'll start with uh, the guys from Shepard Mullen. Yeah, I mean, look, uh, you know, we can go back to the beginning in terms of how the, the leagues and the franchises were created, I think, from a traditional sports model um, and you know, if you look at it, 
to me, it was in many respects trying to put, you know, a square peg in a round hole. The biggest difference um, as it relates, I think, to traditional sports and media rights in particular um, and esports is that, you know, at the at the center of everything um, is the intellectual property that's owned by publishers. And as opposed to in, in traditional sports, that intellectual property, so to speak, is in is in the public domain, right? So if you look at the NFL, I mean, the game of football isn't owned by anybody, right? So the NFL forms a league and they have a closed ecosystem and all of the value is built around those teams and not everyone can get into those leagues, right? Whereas in esports, you know, you've got not only, you know, hundreds of titles, but you've got thousands of tournaments. Um, so I think one of the, the huge differences there um, is the fact that you've got third party intellectual property, intellectual property that's at the heart of something that is being monetized by other parties within the ecosystem. Um, now, I'll let the other guys, I mean, there's all different, you know, other differences and, and I'll let the other guys jump in. But to me, yeah. that, that's at the crux of, of what's different here. Yeah, Kevin, I would, I would just, I would echo those sentiments. I think, I think the fragmented market and nature of of the esports ecosystem versus that kind of consolidated, linear fashion that uh, traditional sports is set up um, is really the driving force behind the 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 dilution of the value, right? Because advertisers, if you think about the broadcasting space and media space. And we're looking at it holistically, right? There's traditional uh, media rights holders or traditional media channels, rather, uh, distribution channels, as well as digital media channels. And esports really is a digital, you know, native sport, right? Um, its entire, um, you know, audience base grew up in the, the digital space, watching YouTube videos of influencers playing games, um, you know, uh, watching matches on twitch um there there is no central hub the the broadcast networks don't don't have you know every sunday and now it's every thursday every saturday you know sunday and monday um you know like the nfl is games that are scheduled at certain linear times you know you've got a bunch to look forward to and you've and everybody knows where to get them um it's 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 super structured Whereas the, the leagues and the tournaments in esports are highly fragmented and diversely spread out sporadically over a, a whole host of digital platforms. So it's really hard to follow. And as a result, it's really hard to monetize and to you know, justify um, that this particular tournament and this particular title and this particular event is worth a lot more than this other one. So that's that's part of the problem. Yeah, I agree with everything that's, that's been said. What I would add is at the center of it all, the publishers are trying to monetize their game, their title. So esports in it of itself um, is really a loss leader to attract 
people to the title. It is a mechanism, at least from the publisher's standpoint, to attract people to the title and, and contribute to the top of funnel. And then the monetization really happens at the title. Now, of course, there's been, and we talk about it in the, in the thought piece, there's been you know, increasingly, you know, uh, sales of, of, of rights fees around the esports, but comparatively to what you're seeing in, in traditional sports, where actually that's a lot of the focus of the monetization, it, it's, it's, it's quite disparate. It's, it, you know, it, it, it's, a, it's an ant comparatively to what you're seeing for, say, the NFL. Um, so, and everything that Dan and kind of Sid articulated you know, is a corollary of this, right? The monetization is is in the game as opposed to in the rights that the game represents, mm -hmm. right? And um, there's other, I would say, structural um, differences, just to kind of mention them, going back to the question you were asking, Kevin, you know, in many cases, you know, esports are global in nature, immediately global, just like video games are. And so, there's less of a geographical identity uh, that enables people to coalesce around the team or a league in that way. Um, obviously, there's different formats, right? City-based uh, uh, franchise leagues versus non, and, and we're seeing those different paths being explored by, by various publishers in the space. But that's, that's I think, a key difference uh, compared to traditional sports. And then going back to the point I was making earlier, uh, and maybe one of the challenges that we see uh, to bringing this truly to a mass uh, adoption is, you know, uh, esports e require a bit of a deeper understanding of of the of the game itself, and the t and not even the game itself, the title itself, right? So, so to really appreciate what it is that we're that we're looking at uh, when we when we tune in, you know, just like Dan did when when he first discovered it uh, uh, on TV. So those are some of the key things, I think, in addition to what uh, Sid and Dan said, that, that differentiate uh, esports from traditional sports. And so oftentimes people make those analogies quickly because it's easy. It's not, it's not as easy as one may think. I, I think something to drive the point home that might, be, might help your listeners is, is the following. I mean, if you take the NFL, there's 16 games, 16 17 now. Um, 17. 17, sorry. <laughs> and, um, and, and it all leads up to one Super Bowl, right? Um, and, I mean, if I'm looking at stats here, if you just take, you know, CSGO um, since its, its inception, um, there's been 6,000 tournaments. You know, there's 14,000 players, Fortnite. Um, you know, there's been 741 tournaments and 5,000 players, uh, you know, so, and, and like we said, each one of those titles is owned by a different company, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, it, it's really difficult with all this fragmentation to package something and sell it, um, where you're going to be able to get the value, um, that, correlates to the actual viewership because the viewership is so massive. And so, okay, so why isn't the value there? And, and certainly the things we've touched on are, are, are the reasons. No, for sure. And so is it, is it safe to say that 
the major benefit of esports, of course, is that it's a global game, but that's also it can be a hindrance because things are so fragmented right now that, you know, it's kind of difficult to really pinpoint what makes each single tournament successful based on, you know, what model they're using or you know how long it goes, because there's thousands of, of formats. There's thousands of tournaments. It's difficult to pinpoint which ones are the most successful. And it's is it because this game is is so global that it kind of makes it hard to figure out what makes makes it successful? Well, I wouldn't say that, Kevin, necessarily, because there are global traditional sports that really are super successful. Just look at soccer slash football, and you know, um, in Europe, and 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 it's even successful in the United States, even though some might say much less successful than the, the top three sports um, or four, for that matter. But but the World Cup is a huge event, um, and it's got more eyeballs than any other, you know, in, in sports. So the fact that it's global in nature, isn't really the problem. Um, it's, it's actually an attraction for, for value. It's how it's packaged and how it's kind of developing or not really developing. Um, and it's also that there's a, there's a hundred games that are global, right? Yeah. That's one. That's not just one. Yeah. Right. So, so, until one game really emerges as that is the go-to game for for the sport, and who knows if that'll ever happen or whether that's even realistic. And I don't think the publishers would want that because that would be detrimental to their business model. But even if you chose a handful of games, and I know that they're you know they're cyclical, right? Because in the video game industry, look no further than like the rock bands and the guitar heroes of you know a decade and a half ago at this point, which I was highly involved in. Uh, it was the latest, greatest, and and that's all that people were playing. Um, I've got you know I've got a rock band uh, set of instruments in my basement that are just like props now. I barely <laughs> pick it up, but it, it was a fun game. But again, it's 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 a flippant the flippant nature of the industry is to come up with the next you know the next greatest title fortnite was a a a really you know a huge instant overnight success almost um and and it garnered an an entire new genre of gaming like minecraft and others that you know you're building like worlds and you kind of combine fighting with it as well um it's really it's really hard to kind of pinpoint what's going to you know drive that market and unlock the value of this global audience because it's there um and we've got some suggestions in our white paper they're by no means a panacea and they're by no means the only ones that are that are that are potentially successful um and workable in um in, in practice but i think until that you know that shift happens in the marketplace you're going to have this problem that esports is always going to lag behind traditional sports in terms of value for media rights. So, and, and by the way, yeah. just to add something, sorry, real quick, okay. Kevin, just to add to that, um, this is a hit-driven business, right? I mean, this is this is what it is, right? And, you know, uh, you're not going to invent another football or another basketball kind of, you know. Every every year, every two years, this is this is the issue, right? One of the structural issues, uh, and even you know, top publishers have difficulty in manufacturing the hits. You know, uh, if you look at you know Apex Legends or Valorant, you know those were supposed to be you know able to dethrone you know League of Legends, etc. But 
that hasn't played out that way. So, you know, community adoption is not something that's, you know, necessarily easy to, to create, you know, from, 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 from the get go. So it's, it's not an easy thing to, to, to execute certainly. And, and I think, as uh, the survivability of some of these uh, original esports titles, you know, continues to be proven out, you may see a coalescence around kind of, you know, a, a more reduced set of top leading titles versus a long tail. And by the way, the long tail can be large, right, and mm. can be quite diverse, and that's okay. Uh, uh, but but um, you know th- that and the fragmentation that we talked about, you know, and we've seen fragmentation have sometimes an adverse effect in traditional sports too. Just take a look at NASCAR back in the day when it was essentially being, um, in terms of the other rights, you know, done on a, on a race by race basis. And it's only when, you know, they started to consolidate things that, you know, the monetization, because now there was more an organizing principle. Now there was a volume of content to be able to, to go out and monetize that, you know, the, the, the rights fees followed. So that's an, that's an interesting point you bring up the consolidation because I know that's a big kind of uh, uh, kind of uh, avenue that esports can go, if you will. That it will if it, it consolidate a few leagues, a few teams, a few just consolidate a, a few things at a time. You can increase the monetization, like like you said, like NASCAR has done. And so I guess what I'm trying to ask is, what does that consolidation look like for each of you? I mean, is it, is it I know I'm sure it's different for for titles, different for, for certain regions. What does that esports consolidation look like in order to reach that next level of monetization? I, I think it I think it's a couple of things. I think first, maybe first and foremost is the consolidation of esports organizations. <laughs> um, because you know from from what I hear, um, there isn't you know, even if you look at the top esports organizations, and if there's a tournament and one of those um, teams doesn't want to participate, it doesn't impact the viewership um, from from what I'm hearing. And so, you know, the publishers or the event organizers aren't necessarily in this position where they have to ensure that a particular team is involved in order to be successful. And what that means is, there's no, there's currently, there's nothing that's driving a consolidation such that there's all these entrants in the space and they're, they're operating at all these different levels. The other thing I think is, um, so I do, I do think there needs to be some consolidation for that reason. And also I think consolidation is going to level the playing field between publishers and esports organizations and teams, right? And I think, and this is not a knock on, on anyone or any side of this. We're agnostic here. <laughs> I do think what we want to see is is this industry maximize its value because what that means is it will be sustained in the long term. And I think in order for that to happen, publishers and esports organizations need to be motivated by the same things. And there needs to be a mutually beneficial business model such that they're both pointing in the same direction, working collaboratively because what the esports teams are doing and the terminants are doing are helping the publishers and what the publishers are doing are helping the esports teams. And I think that's something 
and, and you know, our white paper, we, we talk about some of the ways that can happen. But for me, if I'm just looking at this at 10,000 feet, the real difference here is that, you know, there, there's a real disparity in what is driving the two sides of this ecosystem. And once we can get to the place where it's purely collaborative, um, I think that's when things change immediately. Hmm. And so, I mean, uh, anybody have any thoughts to add on to the consolidation portion of this? I know uh, Francesca kind of hit on it a little bit, but do you want to add anything more to, I guess, how this consolidation avenue can take place? Look, I mean, you know, we we talk about various different um, options there. You know, we, we talked about, you know, provocatively, arguably, you know, the notion of a of a of a Champions Champions League for 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 esports, you know, that may be, you know, wishful thinking at this stage, right? But uh, I think the idea here of um, uh, you know consolidation can take place in areas of the value chain. Think about around the esports organizations, which, by the way, the esports organizations have started to evolve in that way naturally because they don't want to be necessarily dependent on, you know, the rise and fall of one title, for example, or one publisher, right? So now you see these sports organizations that have many teams across many different titles because they're trying to hedge their bet. They're also trying to reposition themselves, uh, not just a participant um, in the, uh, I would say, um, the athletic-driven ecosystem of a league, but they're trying to position themselves as gatekeepers into an audience. Uh, and so changing their own business models to reflect that, right? So some of the things that we talked about earlier in our, in our conversation, because they are recognizing that, look, as, as Sid said, maybe the, the, the championship happens whether they are playing in there or not, right? And But that's only one part of their revenue streams at the moment. You know, maybe the value is more in enabling uh, non-endemic advertisers to have access to the audience that they, because they are, uh, they have, I would say, the a grassroots buy-in of, hey, we have a team or multiple teams that this audience wants to follow. Now we have access, right, to that audience and we can bring it from, uh, bring it to the table when discussing with advertisers. So I think there's different ways of thinking about the, the, the consolidation and, you know, obviously we explore it in the, in the thought piece. For sure. Dan, any final thoughts there on this, on this topic, at least? <laughs> I think, I think the, 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 the gents really summed up the, 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 the issue very well. Um, collaboration for me is completely key. And I don't know exactly how we're going to get there because there are disparate interests amongst the stakeholders right now that really um, are adversely affecting the ability to unlock the value. Um, and when they start um, figuring that out and realizing that there could be money left on the table, I think there are paths a resolution, but it will take a sea change in the industry in order to get there. Um, and um, I'm not sure that the industry is ready for it. Um, but we, like like Francesco and Sid said, we you know we do point out some paths um, and recommendations to that end, um, at least at a high level, and then draw some you know corollaries and analogies to you know traditional sports and emerging sports like the UFC, for example, that really were driven by, uh, you know, a variety of factors and were, were in dire straits when, when, when um, 
it was initially purchased and then uh, then you know dana white and his his folks you know went into it um as an investment and the 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 sport was you know really banned in in the majority of the states in the u.s um you know it's amazing to to look at an emerging sport like that and draw some analogies and learnings from what they went through and how they got there. Um, and I'm sure it's going to tie into other questions you may have, Kevin, so I don't want to steal your thunder, <laughs> but, you know, ancillary content and, you know, uh, other, other supporting vehicles to bring the sport to the masses is really important to kind of drive this home because it's a chicken and egg scenario, I think, right? Mm-hmm. You've got this great audience. It's, it's it, it, the most attractive demo in the world. How do you how do you capture their interest? Um, how do you how do you talk to them and unlock that value um, in a way that's you know uh, uh, easy to understand um, and a way that is scalable in in, in, in every way? And I, I think there are a variety of ways that you can do that, but you have to you have to be speaking on their level. Um, in order to get that adoption. And you also have to kind of bring it down to a level that makes sense for global adoption. Um, but I, again, I think collaboration and consolidation are key. I'm actually so glad you brought up the UFC comparison because that was something that I had thought about in my research. I was thinking, what's a recent league or, or sport that's come into the into the fray that's really you know made it their own kind of audience, made their own kind of path? And the UFC and Dana White have done kind of that over the past, gosh, what has been like thirty years or so since UFC has kind of been uh, established, and so. Doing it that way to kind of it took them roughly 25 years to get into, I guess, uh, one of the big three letter channels, if you will, like ABC, NBC, ESPN, those big cable channels. And so I'm curious, is it worth esports time or the industry as a whole to kind of delve into traditional TV and media? Or is there something more to be said for sticking to that digital route where, you know, anybody with a phone, anybody with a computer screen or even a, a Internet connected TV can, you know, find your content basically for free or for the cost of your, your the Internet connection or the cell phone and access it there? Is there something to be said for that avenue or is that still kind of still too low key for if that's a phrase I can use to really be used as um, as, as an avenue for further monetization? Uh, maybe I can just yeah. start on this one. I think it depends on what's the problem that you're trying to solve. Mm. So, as we said before, and Dan pointed out, you know, esports is digital first. The audience is on digital. So, trying to get that digital native audience to transition them back onto you know traditional broadcast is probably you know not the path, right? You need to focus on where they are, right? Be where your audience is. Okay, that's probably not not the path you should follow. The other thought is to say, okay, well, there's this other audience that may has maybe has not been exposed to esports and could actually enjoy it. By the way, when we when we saw um some of that happening uh during during covid you know when some of the traditional sports you know were, were not being able to be, to be played and you had you know uh, i would say 
non-esports athletes, right, playing esports, you know, <laughs> and that being broadcast on TV, suddenly it opened up, you know, a whole audience that was not really used to seeing esports, right? So, uh, how do you make that transition to kind of make it more palatable or understandable to to um, an audience that may not be uh, its native audience? By the way, that's what you know, when we articulated the, the example of the UFC, that's kind of what they did, right? Mm-hmm. You know, it wasn't necessarily something that was very mainstream or accessible, but the way they did it, and Dan alluded to it earlier through ancillary content, you know, the ultimate fighter was really the spark that enabled people to understand, oh, wow, there's actually more to this UFC thing than, you know, what people used to call human cockfighting, right? I mean, there's a lot more to it. There's actually a whole story around it, right? There's a whole path and there's real athleticism. There's a real skill set. There's a culture. I mean, so all of that you find in esports, right? The question is, how do you make that accessible and understandable to an audience that may not already be, you know, uh, uh, at the at, you know at the core of of the of the esports movement, so yeah. I think that's how I would think about you know the the different ways that you should distribute and expose people to to the sport. Mm-hmm. And I would I, I think that's a great point, Francesco. And I think it's important to understand the differences. Right? It's you have to you have to um, attract that uh that both audiences you've got to hit it from both sides you can't just be in digital and you can't just be in traditional linear broadcast it has to be a a a nice combination of both to attract the existing demo and hardcore gamer and the casual fan you know and the casual fan could be a new fan that becomes a hardcore gamer and hardcore fan um but they but the demos are different right i'm not necessarily on twitch every day watching you know people play games but i am on espn every day and i am you know watching you know traditional sports every weekend um so you know that doesn't mean and i'm interested in video games and i've played video games i grew up on video games and i like competition and i like wagering right (laughs) so there's a variety of ways to attract demos and attract um, new entrants into the market and consumers. They just have to speak to them at different levels. The production value is, and I think we talk about this a little bit in terms of our differences between traditional sports and esports. There is there's a huge production value. If you watch a, a, a football game on Monday Night Football, and it, it's amazing how many cameras, angles, you know, um, you know, graphics, and everything they have to kind of highlight what's going on in the game, the performances, the, you know, whether a catch is inbounds or out of bounds, whether, you know, the ball across the goal line, whatever it may be. Um, So many things to engage the viewer. And also, you know, side content as well that supports, you know, the player story. There's so much culture in this ecosystem, the esports ecosystem that hasn't yet to be unlocked that is not being brought to the masses. And you don't have to bring it to them in, in the form that UFC did, which was really smart, by the way. Um, but, you know, they had that spike deal and they they came up with that reality show and it really drove a lot of, uh, you know, energy into the sport. But on the esports side, the production value has to be different. It, it's And the, the, the different, you know, productions are going to be, you know, targeted and should be targeted toward the gamer and what they expect to see and what they what they like and what their preferences are. So when you're watching 
uh, a tournament that's going on for League of Legends versus you're watching the Lions play the Cardinals on Sunday. It's a it's a totally different experience and, and things that you would want to see as a gamer, whether it's a hardcore gamer or a casual gamer, and what you want to learn about by, about the players, about the teams, about the actual game itself, and what any particular move means or why some particular move is really super difficult and should be lauded versus another. All those things are lacking right now because we just don't have a central way to kind of consume it. But whoever unlocks that is really going to drive the viewership. Mm. I mean, one one quick illustration, you know, watching NFL football, my daughter walks out um, and there's a yellow line where the first down is. And she's like, oh, dad, they have to get to that yellow line to get another first down. Correct. That's easy. That is just very simple to understand. And I think as the as the guys mentioned, there are two audiences here. Um, there's the audience that can sit down and knows the ins and outs of every move and every intricacy of every game. But I do think, as Dan mentioned, there's gotta be a way from a production standpoint to, to make these games, these competitions more digestible to your casual fan. Um, I think that will be when that's unlocked, I think that that's going to be a real differentiator, real difference maker here. So talking of production values, of course, every league has their different kinds of production. Um, pretty much what leagues in esports do it right? I know uh, you guys hit a lot on, on League of Legends. They do a lot of big modernization efforts there. But I'm, I'm assuming they'd be like the biggest uh, in terms of production, the most successful league so far from you from your perspective, right? Yeah, I mean, I think League of Legends, absolutely. And I think, you know, one thing that Francesco kind of backed his way into um, that might actually be a good thing is that you've got the Valorants of the war, you know, coming in and, and failing, right? Because there is there is somewhat, we're starting to see an established market where people are entrenched. And I think we forget about the fact that it's easy to forget how nascent this industry is because it feels like it's been around forever. But to your point with UFC, we're going to look back in 10 years and we're going to see, I think, exactly what we thought was going to happen, which is there's going to be consolidation. Um, there's going to be games that are going to be the focus of certain esports organizations that have a ton of leverage and a ton of, of power, so to speak. And from there, the production values will go up. People are going to focus on particular titles to do those things the right way. I think like, yes, as you said, you know, um, League of Legends does a really good job. I think, you know, if you look at what, you know, the last Call of Duty, you know, national championships, I mean, that that was excellent. And that was, you know, uh, you know, viewership was was significant there. You know, you've got the issue with the violence in some respects in terms of maybe a broader audience. Um, but I think maybe games that are going to be a little bit easier for your casual fan to understand. Um, and maybe that's, you know, some of the EA sports. Right. I mean, looking at football and what what you know what they do and getting, you know, NFL players involved and, you know, things of that nature. 
pretty much um, we've identified some good things, some bad things, some worry things. Um, realistically, landscape is pretty much out in the open still. Um, where do you see a collaborative worldwide esports league platform heading? You know, for the foreseeable future, we're, we're kind of still trying to figure out what things can help esports as a whole. But are we talking like an esports Olympics? Are we talking about developing better broadcasting packages for traditional media? Are you targeting influencers? What exactly does esports uh, have to do to kind of get the most bang for their buck, if you will? Yeah, I would say. There's no silver bullet, first of all, (laughs) right? I think it's going to be a confluence of different things. Uh, Certainly, structurally having a clearly articulated um, schedule, right, of games and championships and having a clearly defined, I would say, pinnacle, right, of of the sport or – for very, I mean, and some of it exists today, but, you know, getting people to understand how to latch into that and follow the story, if you will, uh, is going to be critical. I think also conversely, and you, you've seen it being done by, you know, a range of different um, esports organizations is having a grassroots approach as well, I think is going to be important. Um you know, you could imagine uh, teams licensing out, you know, their brands for local uh, esports leagues uh, to get people at the grassroots into esports and be- making it become as prevalent or as mass as, you know, Little League Baseball, right? So uh, I think having those types of different different efforts, both structurally around the leagues and making sure people can understand what they're looking at when they're just, you know, you know, uh, switching on, uh, uh, you know, and dialing into the content uh, and then making it more prevalent. So people at the grassroots who, you know, may not have had exposure to it historically now have a path uh, into the sports, I think is going to be uh, critical. For sure. Dan, any, any thoughts on that as well? Yeah, I would, I would say I, I echo those sentiments. Definitely. Um, I would say another thing that, I see as a game changer is because, you know, not only having that pinnacle kind of and scheduling and pinnacle event at the end, there's got to be a regional aspect to this to to build brand loyalty and, and, and team loyalty um, and engagement and fan, just casual fan engagement. Right. You know, any, if you look at any traditional sport league, that's really been, um, you know, successful, they build rivalries. Right. And, and, and those rivalries are based on geographic location. And it happens even in the European you know, League for soccer and um, uh, and and other you know, traditional sports. You can go to cricket. You know, you could go down the line. They're all regional based and they all have followings. So I like I like what Envy Gaming is doing. I like, you know, what, um, you know, Activision is doing on the franchising model by tying their teams to cities it's really important to kind of have that model, I believe, for success. And then somehow with the consolidation that we've been talking about uh, and the collaboration come together on a set of titles that are popular, like Sid was just describing, and coming up with a season and a tournament um, that is, you know, that you can sell against and you can monetize and create ancillary content and all of these 
and the production values will start to go up as the money comes in. Um, I, I think that's where you're going to get the largest bang for your buck from a fan engagement perspective, not just the hardcore gamers, but also the casual fans that really have an interest but don't understand what's going on. So they give them a reason to be a fan, right? And if you associate it with their city, and it becomes pervasive and athletes from traditional sports are doing it and uh, movie stars and other people that they identify with um, are, are, you know, collaborating, you know, with various promotions and partnerships to kind of drive the value of the brand for each particular region. Those teams will become meaningful and the publishers will take notice. And that's where that's what will drive that collaboration. And I think I think that's where you'll see success. Guys, I know we're running short on time here, so I just want to say uh, thank you for, for hopping on this call with me, explaining this white paper release. We'll have notes in the podcast description. So, again, I can't thank you guys enough for hopping on, so thank you so much. Thanks, Kevin. Good time. Yeah, thanks for the opportunity. Good to meet you. Take thank care. You. All right. Thanks, guys. It's great chatting. Thank you. That was Dan Schnapp and Sid Foreman from Shepard Mullen and Francesco Diani from FTI Consulting. And I'm your host, Kevin Correa, on the Esports Network Podcast. Yeah.